Thank you so much for taking the time and being here on a holiday weekend, whether you join us in person or watching online. We want to say welcome to you guys. You're awesome. Hey, if you don't know, my name is Micah Barclay. I'm the associate pastor here at Rev City Church, and I have the honor and the privilege of getting to share God's word with you this morning. So if you have your Bibles, I'd love it. Oh, thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> I'd love it if you have your Bibles, you would turn to Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 7. We're also going to look at 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 4, but we're going to start in Nehemiah. Um, if you guys know, we're in a series called This Means War, right? And it's all about the spiritual warfare that's happening over our lives. Who knows that we are in a fight, right? And we're not battling flesh and blood. We're fighting principalities in the unseen world. We're in this spiritual warfare, and, you know, as I, began to, uh, as I began to pray and just ask God, Lord, what would you want me to share in this message? Because spiritual warfare is just one of those topics, like literally so many things we could uh, share, talk about, pray about. And, you know, if you ever come to God with a big question, sometimes he'll answer with a question. So I prayed and God just immediately said, Micah, what is worth fighting for? I was like, well, that's a pretty good question, right? Because at the end of the day, there's a lot of things we could fight for, but really at the end of the day, there's only a few things that are actually worth fighting for. And as I started to write some ideas down, but God just spoke that question over me, and immediately, as soon as he spoke that question, I said, God, there's nothing worth fighting for in my life more than my spouse and my family, my family, my kids. I want to fight for my kids. He said, well, then share a message on that. Share a message on how we fight for our family. Today, I want to talk about the spiritual fight over our family. This might be a challenging message for a few reasons. One is I do not want to pretend like I have it all together, okay? Because I certainly do not have a perfect marriage. I do not have perfect kids. I think I have a great marriage. I think I have great kids, but we are far from perfect. But God's word is settled in heaven. His word is perfect, and it has a lot to say about how we're supposed to spiritually fight for our children. Amen? So that's a challenge, but maybe you're sitting in here today and you're thinking, well, I'm not married, right? Or so I don't have a spouse or I don't have kids, so this message may not be for me. I'm going to get out early, you know, sneak out and whatnot. But this message is for you too, okay? Because not only, if you're not a mom, dad, that's fine, but if you call yourself a believer in Christ, you are part of a spiritual family. And specifically, if you come and you make this church your home and you serve in Rev City Kids or you come on Wednesday nights and you serve in the youth ministry, you are serving as a spiritual mom and as a spiritual dad, a spiritual brother and big sister. And if our physical families are worth fighting for, how much more so for our spiritual families? So this is for everyone, regardless if you're a father, mother or not, this message is for you. I promise there will be things that you uh, pull out of this message and even if I was thinking about it, I remember Pastor Thomas always encourages us wherever there's power, potential, or promise, the enemy is sure to oppose that thing. And what has more power, potential, or promise than family? Think about it. It's, how God, it's God's chosen analogy, how he relates to you and me, right? God is our father. We are his sons and his daughters. Jesus is our elder brother. Our families are worth fighting for. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. So before we dive into uh, the word of God today, I just love it if we pray, prepare our hearts to receive this message, message because I truly believe God has something for us. So let's just pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we've already had. Your presence is here, but I just invite even more. Holy Spirit, come and fill this place. Give us divine wisdom on what it means to fight for our families, Jesus. 
Give us a passion. Give us a desire, regardless of where our marriages are right now, where our kids, what they're doing right now. May we stand up and learn how to fight, not in our own strength, but God in yours. We give you this morning. We give you this time. May it be your words that everyone hears today. In Jesus' name, everyone said Amen, amen. All right, like I said, turn to Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 7. Let me briefly explain what's happening in the book of Nehemiah, because if you're not familiar with the story, Nehemiah is a cupbearer to the king of Babylon, all right? He's in exile, and he, gets this, he hears this story of Jerusalem that it's lying in, ru- uh, in ruins, right? The wall's destroyed. It's a terrible uh, fate of the people of Israel. So he asks permission to go back and rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and miraculously, he actually gets permission to do that. So he goes back to his home country of Israel, goes to Jerusalem, gathers the people together and says, the Lord has given me this vision. We're called to rebuild this wall and rebuild the city. And they set off to do it. The problem was there was a lot of enemies of Israel who lived in that area and they wanted anything but to have the walls rebuilt. They didn't want to see the city come back to life again. And this is where we pick up the story in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 7 through 15. We're going to read all of it, then we're going to come back and we're going to unpack a few things. Starting verse 7. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the work was going on ahead and that the gaps in the wall of Jerusalem were being repaired, they were furious. This is the enemy of Israel. They're mad that the walls are being rebuilt. They all made plans to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw us into confusion. But we prayed to our God and guarded the city day and night to protect ourselves. Then the people of Judah began to complain, the workers are getting tired, and there is so much rubble to be moved. We will never be able to build the wall by ourselves. Meanwhile, our enemies were saying, before they know what's happening, we will swoop down on them and kill them and end their work. The Jews who lived near the enemy came and told us again and again, they will come from all directions and attack us. So I, Nehemiah, placed armed guards behind the lowest parts of the wall in the exposed area. I stationed the people to stand guard by families. I want everyone to say, stand guard by families. Nehemiah positions the people to stand guard by families armed with swords, spears, and bows. Then as I looked over the situation, I called together the nobles and the rest of the people and said to them, do not be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord who is great and glorious and fight for your brothers, fight for your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that we knew of their plans and that God had frustrated them, we all returned to the work on the wall. Then let's skip down to verse 19 and 20. We'll end it here. Then I explained to the nobles and the officials and all the people, the work is very spread out and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. When you hear the blast of the trumpet, rush to wherever it is sounding. Then our God will fight for us. I want you guys to catch this this morning, okay? Jerusalem is under the threat of imminent attack. They know it's coming. They know it's coming. And Nehemiah does three things. One, he positions by families in the weakest parts of the wall, okay? Then he goes to those families and he says, listen up, when that enemy comes, get ready. Get ready, fight for your brothers, fight for your sons, fight for your daughters, fight for your wives, fight for your homes. He's encouraging, get ready for a fight. He says, but when the enemy comes and you hear the sound of the trumpet blast, step back and watch our God fight for us. 
you're taking notes, this is the first thing I want you to write down. If you're willing to fight for your family, our God will fight for you. Okay, this side is not spiritual enough. I'm going to come over here real fast, okay? Hey, if you fight for your family, God will fight for you, amen? I knew I'd get an amen. Thank you, guys. I'll give you a second chance later. Don't worry, don't worry. But think about what I'm saying here, okay? Nehemiah knows a battle's coming. He puts up fam- by families to guard the city. He goes, buy- come on, families are important. He's like, you have a chance. You're going to defend right here in a weak area. And we're going to give you swords, spears, and bows, all this stuff. And he encourages them. It's like a Braveheart scene, right? He's like, fight for your families. Fight for your homes. Fight for it, right? But then he goes, no, wait. When the enemy actually comes, step back and watch. Our God will fight for you. If you're just willing to fight, Our God will fight for us. Look what it says in verse 8. We're going to go back. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 8. It says, they, meaning the enemies of Jerusalem, all made plans to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw us into confusion. But we prayed to our God and guarded the city day and night to protect ourselves. Listen, okay, Sanballat and Tobiah are the ringleaders who are threatening the people of Jerusalem, right? They're the ones who are saying, we're going to come down, and in a moment, we're going to attack them. But we realize we do not fight flesh and blood. No matter what the media says, we are not right against left, Republican versus Democrat, anything like that. Our battle is not against people. No matter how bad we want it to be, our battle is in the unseen world, right? And listen to this, okay? What was the enemy's plan in this story? Did you guys catch that? It was to throw the people of God into confusion. And even though we're not battling a physical person, the enemy has the same plans today. So let me ask you this question. Where is the enemy trying to confuse your family right now? Where does your family feel the most confused? You know, I didn't mention this earlier, like when I was saying, I really don't have it all together, but my wife and I have been married 12 years. Uh, We have four, come on, woo, thank you, Jesus, with many, many more to come. And we have four beautiful kids. They're a little younger. They're nine, seven, five, and two. And so they're going through different things. They're going to school, and I'm having a chance to minister to them. But one of the things I get to do here in this position at the the church is I get to minister to our youth. And I want to say something, okay? Our students, our youth, are being attacked, and the way the enemy's attacking them is through confusion, okay? They're trying to confuse their sexuality. They're trying to confuse their identity as a son and daughter of God. They're trying to confuse the morality. 15 years ago, what we knew to be sure was evil is somehow good now, and what is evil is now good, right? That's the plan and the enemy is to confuse and confuse, confuse. Where in your family is the enemy trying to confuse you and your children? Look what it says in verse 10. Then the people of Judah began to complain, the workers are getting tired, and there is so much rubble to be moved, we will never be able to build the wall by ourselves. Parents, let me speak to you. Have you ever felt that way before, right? Raising kids, come on. (laughs) You're just like, golly, I do not know how I'm supposed to have the strength to do this. I do not know how I'm supposed to have the wisdom to do this. It literally feels overwhelming. I mean, I'm just speaking as a father of four, right? Sometimes I'm just thinking, golly, how am I going to have the strength to this. This is what they're feeling. So this is what happens. Not only do they, are they feeling tired about rebuilding the wall, it says, meanwhile, in verse 11, our enemies were saying, before they know what's happening, we will swoop down on them and kill them and end their work. 
The Jews who lived near the enemy came and told us again and again, they will come from all directions and attack us. And listen, isn't that just like the God of this world, right? Who just infuses himself into the culture. Sometimes my family doesn't even have to be attacked. It's just the threat of the attack that we might live under, right? It's like, everything's going great, but what if this happens? What if we have to wear masks again? What if this happens? What if that happens? And it's it's the threat that sometimes makes me more filled with anxiety than the actual attack itself. And this is the kind of uh, situation that they're living under. So this is what Nehemiah does. In verse 13, it says, so I place armed guards behind the lowest parts of the wall in the exposed areas. I stationed the people to stand guard by families armed with swords, spears, and bows. Look, Satan is always going to try to come and attack you in the weakest and the exposed areas of your life. So let me ask you this question. What are the weak, what are the exposed areas in your life? Fathers, I want to speak to you for a moment. Men, we're supposed to be the spiritual leaders of our family. The areas where we are weakest the most is often where Satan tries to attack us and our families. So it's really important that we understand what those areas are so we can position our family there to start building first and saying, no, when the enemy comes, I'm willing to fight, but I know my God is going to fight for me. It was interesting, as I was preparing for this message, I came across this research from, uh, from Barna. And Pastor Thomas m- mentioned Barna Research Group. Uh, they're a very well-respected group who does a lot of like, think tanking for secular companies, but specifically their bread and butter is really with, in the Christian field. And they do all these different research articles for me. And I came across this one. And according to Barna Research, it says 6 and 12% of people aged 13 years old and older view pornography daily. Six and 12% of people aged 13 years old and older view pornography daily. Come on, we're talking about the exposed or weak areas in our family's life. 14 to 21% view porn weekly. 13 to 19% view it at least twice a month. Okay, now listen, this message is not about pornography and all the pain and sorrow it causes your family. It's true, it will. The point is, what is the weak areas? What are the areas that we know we may be weak in or our family be weak in? And how can we defend those areas? Listen to me, fathers. Do you pray with your kids? Are you teaching them what service means? Are you teaching them what purity means? Listen to this. You know, something really interesting I found in this article is that there was three main indicators whether or not your child is going to suffer from pornography. And here they are. They are age, gender, and their faith. Let me give you an example. It says 72% of males 13 to 24 years old not practicing Christianity say they suffer from a pornography addiction. 72% of males 13 to 24 years old not practicing Christianity. That's in contrast to 41% of males 13 to 24 years old who say they are practicing Christians but say they struggle with pornography, okay? 72% versus 41%. And this is a few years old, so it's probably actually a little worse than this now. But listen to this. I still think even though that's better than 72, 41% is way too high for the church. It's absolutely way too high. But if this research holds true, that means little uh, under half of the students, guys, in our youth group are struggling with a pornography addiction. Now, 
again, this is not about the, just that topic. It's the same any area. But if we can look at this research and just realize this is a weak or exposed area in our family's life, what can we do to defend and fight against it? Remember, this is supposed to be encouraging. All you have to do is be willing to fight for your family. Just be willing to fight for your family. God says, if you fight for your family, I will actually fight for you. Sometimes I don't feel like I have the strength. I don't have the courage. I don't have everything I need to go against uh, the enemy that's coming against my family. But he says, you don't have to have it all together. All you have to be willing to do is stand up and fight and watch our God fight for us. So we could stay in Nehemiah because I love this book. It pretty much preaches itself. You just read line by line. There's something that you can pull out of it. But I want to move to uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 4. Because it gives us a perfect illustration of a man of God, a father who did some amazing things right and a lot of things wrong with his family. And that man was King David. Okay, so maybe you're familiar with King David, maybe you're not. You've heard of David and Goliath, you've heard of King Saul and King David, you've heard of David's mighty men, right? Well, this is a point in his life where he's come to the end of his life, he's on his deathbed. And he has an opportunity to say something to the people of God and to his son Solomon, who is succeeding him as king over Israel. So this is what it says in 1 Chronicles 28, verses 4 through 10. Again, we're going to read it and then come back and look at it. This is David speaking. Yet the Lord, the God of Israel, has chosen me from among all my father's family to be king over Israel forever. For he has chosen the tribe of Judah to rule, and from among the families of Judah he chose my father's family. And from my father's sons the Lord was pleased to make me king over all Israel. And from among my sons, for the Lord has given me many, he chose Solomon to succeed me on the throne of Israel and to rule over the Lord's kingdom. He said to me, your son Solomon will build my temple and its courtyards, for I have chosen him as my son. I will be his father." And if he continues to obey my commands and regulations as he does now, I will make his kingdom last forever. So now, with God as our witness and in the sight of all Israel, the Lord's assembly, I give you this charge. Be careful to obey all of the commands of the Lord your God so that you may continue to possess this good land and leave it to your children as a permanent inheritance. Now he speaks to his son directly. In verse 9, and Solomon, my son, learn to know the God of your ancestors intimately. Worship and serve him with your whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord sees every heart and knows every plan and thought. If you seek him, you will find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. So take this seriously. The Lord has chosen you to build a temple, has his sanctuary. Be strong and do the work. I just love this scripture because I just imagine David laying on this bed and having an opportunity to share some wisdom with his son before he dies. And I don't know about you guys, but when I think about my personal walk with the Lord, I want to get closer to God every single day. That is my goal. And as a follower of Christ, I pray that that's your goal as well. So every single day, I try to get closer to God and closer with God and closer with God. I want to do that every single day until the day I die, I go home to be with him. And that's my spiritual ceiling. That's the place that I, I maybe get to one day. But one of my deepest prayer for my children is that my spiritual ceiling would be their spiritual floor. 
that I would leave them an inheritance of not worldly wealth, but of spiritual wealth, saying this is where I was able to go one day, but I want you to go even further. I want you to love God harder, serve him with even greater passion and greater authority, that my spiritual ceiling would be their spiritual floor. And this is what I just sense with David talking to his son Solomon. He's saying, love the Lord your God. Serve the God of your answers. Know what it means to know him intimately. And this really leads us to our second point. If you're taking notes, write this down. To win the spiritual battle over our family, we have to encourage our children to know God intimately. If you want your children to succeed in their life, their spiritual walk with God, we have to do more than just tell them about God. We have to do more than just tell them to believe in God. James says that even the demons believe in God and tremble in terror. Believing in God is not enough. We have to know him on an intimate level. So what does that mean? How do we know God on an intimate level? That's a good question, right? If that's what we need to do, how do we do it? The answer is right here in the next verse. He says to worship him and serve him with your whole heart and a willing mind. That's how we learn how to know God intimately. And it's funny because so I minister to a lot of people here at the church, and they're gonna, they come and they share some different problems that's going on in their life. It's great. They share those things with me. And inevitably, after I hear them, before we even deal with those issues, I always ask them this question. Same question every single time. I say, tell me about your personal walk with the Lord. Tell me about your devotion time. And almost without fail... I get this answer, and if you've given me this answer before, I'm not going to call you out, but it kind of goes something like this. Well, I know I could do better. Anyone ever say that before? Come on, someone asks you, hey, how's your devotion time? How's your, you know, your intimate time with the Lord? Well, I know it could be better. And honestly, I can say that with confidence because I've said that. Pastor Eddie's my oversight, and he asks me that question all the time. It's a good question to ask, and all of a sudden I go, yeah, okay, you know what, I've had... I've had better moments, I've had better weeks, I've had better months of spending time with the Lord, and it's a reminder that I need to do that. But regardless, so people will answer in that way, and I just wanna encourage you guys with something. Sometimes we make this Christian faith, this Christian walk way too hard. You would be shocked, all David is saying here, you will learn to love the Lord, the God of your ancestors, on an intimate level if you worship him, you pray, and you serve him. I just want to encourage you guys, if you did just those simple things, if you read your Bible, if you prayed, if you served, you came and made a family of God a commitment in your life, you're saying, I'm coming, not just to mark it off a Sunday do checklist, but you're saying, I'm actually here, watch your relationship with God explode. You know, so many times we say like, oh, I don't hear God. I don't, you know, I don't sense his presence. Is he even real? And I go again, tell me about your personal time with the Lord. Do you pray? Do you worship on your own or just wait for someone else to pray and worship for you? Do you actually do it? The people who say, yeah, I do it, are the ones who aren't struggling with hearing God's voice. You know, I want to again speak to fathers here just for a second, because I'm a father, so I can speak to you guys this way. But are we setting the example for our kids to follow? Are we really setting the, the, the example? Do we show our kids more excitement when the Chiefs score a touchdown than we do when we come in here and we worship what Jesus did on the cross, defeating hell, death, and the grave? Come on. I'm stepping on some toes because I love my Jayhawks. I love my Chiefs. Come on. It was awesome getting those wins. I'm excited. But think about it. Do our kids see us more excited about a pigskin crossing a goal line than we do when we worship the Savior of the universe? 
We tell our kids, hey, you need to worship, you need to worship, and we sit there like this, or like this, or sip in our cup of coffee. That's a little weak. I'm going to have to make a suggestion about that, right? While everyone else is worshiping, are we giving them an example to follow? Are we serving? We're telling them, hey, it's important to serve. It's important to give back. Are we serving the church? Are we serving the community? Do our kids hear us pray? Think about this. Do your kids hear you pray outside of the dinner table? Our kids need to hear us pray. You know, I, I come from a family, a bigger family. There's six of us. I'm one of six. And I cannot remember a time where I did not wake up and see my mom and dad either praying or reading their Bibles together or doing it separately in different rooms. And my parents were not perfect. They are not perfect. But they were amazing examples for us growing up. And even my mother and father-in-law, they are just amazing examples for my wife, Adrienne, and I of what it means to know the God of our ancestors on an intimate level. But I remember waking up. It did not matter what time I woke up. I always saw my mom and dad praying and reading the Bible. And I think about that now as a father I think about my dad. My dad was a really big runner in college. He loved to run. But then when he got done with that, started having a family, he did these things called triathlons where you swim, you bike, and you run. It's probably even a little more grueling. And it takes a lot of dedication, a lot of training. And my dad would get up at who knows how early in the morning so he could pray, read his Bible, then he'd go work out, then he'd come back, see us off to school, then he'd go to work, then he'd come back. He was always our basketball coach, our soccer coach, something. And as a father now, I just think, like, when did my dad even have time to sleep? But as a father, I realized, oh, we don't sleep anymore. I get it. Like, it makes sense. You're going to get a lot done when you don't sleep. My dad was an amazing example of what it meant to be a man after God's own heart. And my mom, the same thing too. I really loved enjoying talking about Jesus with my mom because my mom knew Jesus always spoke to her when she had coffee and cinnamon rolls in the oven, right? So come on, praise you, thank you, Jesus. Calories don't count at church, but I, I, they don't count at, during quiet times either. And so I'd come down, I'd walk down the stairs, I could smell the coffee, I could smell the cinnamon rolls, and she would just say, hey, come sit by me for a second. Even through high school, and she'd say, hey, let me tell you what God showed me in the scripture. And she'd share something. And then she'd ask me this question and say, what's God showing you? And what that taught me was my parents are not just Sunday morning Christians. My parents are seeking to know God intimately. And they're telling me I can know God intimately. And how do we do it? It's by taking time to pray and worship on our own. And I had people in this very church take the time when I was in high school here 18 years ago, and they would say, do you know how to worship Micah? And I'd go over to their house, and they'd teach me how to worship. They'd teach me how to pray, and it helped me become the man of God that I feel like I'm becoming every single day. And maybe you're hearing that, and you're kind of thinking, like, that sounds great, but Pastor Micah, you do not know my family. That was not me growing up. That was not my family. That's certainly not what I'm doing for my kids. If you knew all the mistakes I made, you wouldn't even want me in this church. Look, if you feel like you've made a lot of mistakes, let me tell you, you're in good company. I have made so many mistakes, I don't even care to tell you guys how many mistakes I've made with my family. You're in great company. But maybe even more importantly than me, David is a great example of doing some things excellently and some things that we should never, never do Two examples I want to share with you. If you're familiar with the story of his sons, Absalom and Amnon. If you're not familiar, Absalom and Amnon are two half-brothers. And Absalom has a beautiful sister named Tamar. And Amnon falls in love with his half-sister. 
but he's afraid to tell anyone about it because he feels like, you know, that's kind of weird. I better not tell anyone. And so what does he end up doing? The worst thing possible, he ends up raping his half-sister. And not only that, the Bible says the love that Amnon had for Tamar when he raped her turned to hatred and sent her away. Obviously, that would infuriate anyone, especially infuriated Absalom, and he gets so upset, and this is what King David does about it. He expects David to do something about it, and in 2 Samuel verse 13, or I'm sorry, 2 Samuel uh, chapter 13, verse 21, says, when King David heard what had happened, he was very angry. He was angry. That's the only thing he did. And in fact, if you have a study Bible, or maybe depending on what version of uh, the Bible you read, I have a study Bible that has a little asterisk here, and I went down and read it and said, in the most ancient manuscripts, including the ones from the Dead Sea Scrolls, adds another sentence onto it, and this is the sentence. He says, but he, speaking of David, did not punish his son Amnon because he loved him, for he was his firstborn. Think about this. David played favoritism with his sons. And because of that, Absalom, in his rage, ends up killing his brother, Amnon. David loses a son. But not only that, his relationship with Absalom is now broken because one of his sons killed another one of his sons, right? If you keep reading the story, you kind of figure out that they somewhat mend their relationship. They pretend like it's good, but Absalom never really forgives David. He ends up uh, trying to overthrow the, his kingdom, does a pretty good job. He's pretty much done it. But in a final battle, Absalom is defeated and he loses his life. And because David's unwillingness to discipline his children and his unwilling, and because of his willingness to show favoritism, he loses two sons. They both die. There's another story of his son Adonijah. Adonijah tries to take over King David's throne when uh, David's uh, coming to the end of his life. We can read about it in 1 Kings 1 through 5. It says, um, about this time, David's son Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith, began boasting, I will make myself king. So he provided himself with chariots and charioteers and recruited 50 men to run in front of him. Now his father, King David, had never disciplined him at any time, even by asking, why are you doing that? As a father, I feel like that's all I'm telling my kids. Why are you doing that? Stop it. Why are you doing that? Stop it, right? I feel like that's what I say a lot to my kids. David wouldn't even go that far. Think about this. David lost two of his sons because of his unwillingness to discipline them. He showed favoritism, and he wouldn't even ask him a simple question saying, why are you doing that? What would it look like if we just took the time to say, why are you posting that? Why are you hanging out with those friends? Why? Proverbs 13, 24, many of us know it, but I love how it says it in the message version. It says, a refusal to correct is a refusal to love. That's good. A refusal to correct is a refusal to love. Love your children by disciplining them. Proverbs 22, 6 says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. So listen, we can see David makes a lot of mistakes with his kids, and I'm talking about a lot of mistakes. Cost some of his son's life. But the end of his life, he's looking at his son Solomon, And I just imagine the passion and conviction he has in his voice. He says, and Solomon, my son, learn to know the God of your ancestors intimately. Worship and serve him with your whole heart and a willing mind. 
For the Lord sees every heart and knows every plan and thought. If you seek him, you will find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. So take this seriously. What would it look like if we took the time to look in our sons and our daughters in the eye and say, take this seriously? This could be a matter of life and death. Take this seriously, knowing the God of your ancestors, this is important. Don't believe in God because I believe in God. I want my kids to believe in God because they know who God is. They know his faithfulness. They know his goodness. They know his promises over their life. That's why I want them to know God. Two steps. We have to be willing to fight, and this is good news. If we're willing to fight, God declares he will fight for us. Second thing we have to do with our kids, we have to encourage them to know the God of their ancestors intimately. The third and final step we have to do if we want to win the spiritual war over our family is we must learn how to intercede for our family. We must learn how to intercede for our family. Who's ever heard of the word intercede before? Let me see your hands. Okay, or intercessory prayer, maybe you've heard it that way. Honestly, I think intercessory prayer is one of the mis most misunderstood things in the Christian faith. Oftentimes, you know, if you were to ask me, you would, I would have said something like, yeah, intercessory prayer is when you get a pile of beef sticks and, and um, you know, Gatorade, lock yourself in a closet for four hours and you just pray. And that sounds pretty good, to be honest. I wouldn't mind doing that if I had four hours. But that's not intercessory prayer. In fact, intercessory is not even a prayer. It's an action. But listen, you can offer a prayer of intercession. Or let me say it this way. Faith itself is not a prayer, right? But you can offer up a prayer of faith. James tells us faith is an action, but we can actually offer up a prayer of faith. Intercession is not a prayer. It's an action, but we can offer up a prayer of intercession. So what is intercession? Now, understand what it is. We have to look at the Hebrew word pagah. I want everyone to say pagah. I can make you guys say anything. It's awesome. This is great. The Hebrew word is pagah, and it's used 46 times in the Old Testament, and out of those 46 times, only a few times is it translated the way we think of intercession as prayer. Most of the time, it follows this basic definition, which is the act of bringing two parties together. The act of bringing two parties together. We can read about it in Genesis 32, verse 1. It says, now Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. That's pagah. It's saying angels, Jacob, pagah, coming together. But there's also different ways it can be translated. And in Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 59, we can read about how uh, it's translated the way we view intercession. Isaiah 53, verse 12, it says this. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for the rebels. This verse is talking about the Messiah. He's saying, here's God. Here's the rebels. I'm going to intercede for them. I'm going to bring these two parties together. The rebels who were once far from God, God's over here. I'm bringing them together. Jesus is the Messiah. We know that now. And he constantly intercedes for you and me. We can read about it in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. It says, therefore he, speaking of Jesus is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Do you guys realize that? Jesus stands before the Father day in and day out, looking at his sons and his daughters, saying, this is where your kids are, God. This is where you are. 
I want to bring them together. I want to make intercession for them. And every single day, in constant prayer to God, he's making a prayer of intercession. And that's why we're allowed to get to go to God. That's God. two parties coming together. We can come to God because Jesus intercedes for us. And the crazy thing is, David takes the time to intercede not only for his son Solomon, but for his country as well. And we can read about it in 1 Chronicles 29, verses 18 and 19. Again, this is the end of David's life. He says, O Lord, the God of our ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, make your people always want to obey you. See to it that their love for you never changes. Then he prays over his son. Give my son Solomon the wholehearted desire to obey all of your commands, laws, and decrees, and to do everything necessary to build this temple for which I have made these preparations. Listen. He's taking the time to pray and intercede over his country and over his children. What would it look like if we took the time that we spend complaining about our country on social media and we started interceding for our country instead? We're saying, this is where our country is. This is where God is. We know there has to be a coming together. And it doesn't have to be. That's not that long of a prayer. Sometimes we try to make this way too hard, and I don't know why. Right? We like, I have to use this religious language and flowing words and all this stuff. No, it's just saying, bring these two together. What would it look like? What would it look like if I just took the time to pray for my kids every single day and said, God, give my children, Matea, Lydia, Hadassah, and Judah, a wholehearted desire to obey all of your commands, laws, and decrees, and fill them with your Holy Spirit right now. In Jesus' name, amen. That's intercession. I'm saying, this is where my family is. This is where God is. I want to bring them together. What would it look like if you took just a few minutes a day and prayed for your spouse and interceded for her? What would it look like, or him? What would it look like if you took the time to pray for your, uh, for your daughter-in-law or your son-in-law, a niece, a nephew that's far from God? Instead of spending all this time worrying about it, we actually took the time to pray about it. Cast all of our cares upon the Lord, right? He will renew our strength. We just have to offer the prayer of intercession, saying, this is where the situation is. God, this is where you are. Would you bring this together? What would our families look like if we took the time? What would our country look like if we took the time? What would this city look like if we took the time to intercede and pray for our families, for our country, and for our city? Can I guys have you stand to your feet as we close here? As I was preparing this sermon, I just began asking God, God, what do you want to do? Who do you want to minister to? And I felt um, the Lord say that there was going to be a lot of people in this room that as soon as I started speaking on this message, you realize there was people in your life that you need to begin interceding for. Again, it could be a son, a daughter, son-in-law, daughter-in-law, father-in-law, mother-in-law, whoever the case may be, a niece, a nephew. Who is it in your family that you need to start fighting for? Who is it in your family that you need to start interceding for? And I want to get a chance for us to pray and intercede for that person, to intercede for our families. But first, is there anyone in here that maybe that's speaking to? Is there anyone in here that has a family member, a loved one that you need to intercede for? Come on, hands all over this room right now. Guys, you're not alone. You're not alone. There's people in my family that I've spent way too much time 
being fearful about, what if they do this, what if they do that? And if I took that time and proactively started interceding for them, it's a lot better time spent. So right where you're at, guys, can we just turn our hearts to the Lord and begin to intercede for our families? I want you to start declaring your loved one's name right now just quietly underneath your breath and believing in faith that God is going to do something in a powerful way in their life. In a simple prayer saying, God, this is where I know you are. You're enthroned in heaven, enthroned on our praises, but this is where this person is. This is where this situation is. God, would you come and meet them in a real, practical, and a powerful way? Thank you, Jesus. Would you just agree, everyone just agree with this prayer. Father, we pray and intercede for our families and our loved ones. We are standing here today declaring we are willing to fight, knowing that if we're just willing to fight for our homes, our spouses and our loved ones, you will fight for us. God, may you give us the wholehearted desire to obey all of your commands, laws, and decree. We pray that our children would, not have, would have a passion for your name and would live their lives like Jesus did, not seeking his own will, but seeking your will above all else. God, may you give them an abundance of your presence. May you fill them with your Holy Spirit. We ask that you bless them, keep them. May your face shine upon them in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's believe in faith that God is really doing something in our family when we make those type of prayers. Again, we don't have to overcomplicate it. It doesn't have to be something that like these big, long prayers, just taking the time to intercede for our families, for our loved ones, and watch them change, amen? Before we close, maybe you're hearing this and you're thinking, wow, this is awesome. I had no idea I had access to the Father like this, and I can pray for my children. I could pray for my loved ones. But we can do that only because Jesus intercedes for me and Jesus intercedes for you. And we never want to leave without giving you an opportunity to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior so you can have Jesus interceding on your behalf. So very simply, is there anyone in here today that wants to rededicate their life to Jesus Christ or someone in here that says, man, I wanna give my life to Christ because I need Jesus interceding for me. My sins are many, I am separated, I am far from God, but I wanna make a commitment to follow him now with my whole life, with my whole heart. Is there anyone in here today, would you just raise your hand so we know who to pray for? Anyone in here all? Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. Anyone else? I wanna encourage anyone watching online, this is for you too. You could be watching this today. You could be watching this four months from now. If you feel a stirring in your heart and God is saying, come home, come home. My son is interceding for you and he's begging for you to come home. Would you repeat this prayer? You can close, uh, raise your, uh, lower your hands and just repeat this prayer after me. And we do this together for a couple of reasons. One, we do it because we want to show the people who made this commitment, we love you and we want to support you. Secondly, we make this commitment because it reminds us we never graduate from grace. I need to be reminded. I need to seek forgiveness and have Jesus intercede for me daily. So right where you are, would you just repeat this prayer after me? Father, thank you for sending Jesus to pay the price I could never pay, to make a way that I might have a new life and a fresh start. I give you that life and I give you my trust. And because of the blood of Jesus, I will never be the same. Come on, I believe in faith. You will never be the same. Can we give God a shout of praise for what he's doing? Thank you, Jesus. Worship team, would you lead us real fast? And we'll come up and close. We love you guys.